we're glad you're here. If you're new with us, I'm Chris Payne. I'm the lead pastor here and very excited about having you here. We're going to end our series on Wait What, which I'm sad because we could do this forever. We'll probably do a part two, like a Wait What What kind of thing or something <laughs> coming up next uh, in the spring or something. But we do have awesome things planned for the spring and for the rest of Christmas. We're going to start a new series next week called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And God is with us in the trials and in the good things. And so we're going to talk about that as we get into the Christmas spirit of things. But I wanted to conclude our Wait What series. And if you're new with us, I was so hard when you preach because I don't want you to leave going, wait, what? What's that dude talking about? That's like a preacher's number one fear is people just leave like that. Especially if you're new because we set so much foundation on what we're talking about in this series with Wait What. The, the point of this is it's easy to read the scripture and as you go through it, if you, if you don't just go through it really quick, like how many of you guys have like a, a Bible that you read every day or like a chronological Bible or a daily Bible reading? Anybody do that kind of stuff? Okay, look, nobody likes the Bible. Uh, they're like, not me, bro. Uh, well, if you ever do that, it's really easy just to read through the Bible and, and, and you're just going through it and you're just trying to kind of check mark, right, right, especially the achievers in the room, and, and you don't even remember what you, what you read. I don't know how many of you have ever done that. It's kind of like when you drive to work, and you're like, wait, I was on a highway. I passed a lot of traffic. How did I get here? I don't even remember anything happening. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, it's really scary, okay? Uh, but I think it's even more scary when we do that spiritually. We're just kind of going through the motions. And so when you actually open the scripture, there's so many moments where you're going, wait, what? I, I got to chew on that. Like, what is going on? And that's what we've tried to look at some of these scriptures that uh, sometimes are hard to understand, especially if you don't have the grand narrative of what's going on, what is happening even behind the scenes of our life that the scripture is opening up to us in even the spiritual world. Our key verse that we've been hitting and a, a real big wait what scripture that a lot of us have probably read through and passed by without really thinking about it is, is Paul writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, which is why it's called Ephesians. And he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he's like, yeah, okay, I got that. Put on the whole armor of God, okay, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Okay, there's a devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Wait, what? Against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul is not some weird kind of guy on TV and saying, just touch the screen and send me your money. This is a dude sacrificing his life, brilliant orator, brilliant mind. I mean, he wasn't like, some, some people think of Israel and, and, you know, and people even first century, like, oh, they just, they didn't understand. They were illiterate. This dude was brilliant. He knew more languages than you. He knew more things and philosophy than probably you, okay? He is a brilliant guy. And yet he had this worldview that, listen, the enemy that you think is in front of you, that's not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your kids are not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Your president is not your enemy. Even if you're not a fan of him, like I'm not a lot. He's still not your enemy. What is really going on? And he says this, there are things going on that you don't really understand, but you have to understand our battle is not like what you, the way you think it is. 
We don't battle in the same way that you've always learned to battle and cursing your enemies and hating people and complaining and, and going against them or fighting them. That's not what we do. There is something greater, a big narrative going on. And we've spent a lot of time in the past four weeks explaining what that narrative is going on in the scripture, that there is a God, the most high God, the God of all gods, lowercase g, but then there are other gods, spiritual beings. And we've been talking about that, that we have angels and demons and spirits, sons of God. We've been talking about that. But God, the creator of God, has created everything. And he delegates authority to us and to them. And we've seen that in the scripture. And so when you see even other religions or other countries that are worshiping other gods, it's not that they're just like fake things. There are real things out there, real demonic presence, real evil out there. That explains, actually gives you a good philosophical worldview for evil. And not just that God's this mean person out trying to get you, but that there was a cosmic rebellion and God is now on a mission to restore back this earth and he wants to use you and me. This is the grand narrative of scripture. And it's a big idea that we have to understand as we go through scripture and that Paul obviously Understood. We see this in our world. We talked about this, like the fascination with supernatural things. Even the practice of supernatural things. I mean, just a couple blocks away, there's a psychic center, right? There, not center, but a little place. You can get your palms read. You can get get all these kind of things. And and it's easy to scoff at that. But some of that stuff is really real. And it works. And there's a darkness and there's an evil. And you need to be aware of that lest you fall into misunderstanding and misappropriation and do what a lot of people have done where they grow up in church and then they hear about Wicca or paganism and some of these other religions and they go, oh man, that's really what I want because I could get power through these things. And we're not proclaiming a gospel of power over the enemy and over our lives for things that are holding us down. So if you're new and you're going, I don't know, this is that kind of church. Well, it is because we're a Bible church. This is the Bible. And when we don't speak the Bible, what are we talking about? And, and scripture would even say this. Many people are going to come and show you a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. There's a power behind what we're doing because we serve a God that is powerful. And again, he's taking back what the enemy came in to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10, 10. I want to show you a little bit of what's going on. And let me, let me, I'm going to give you this article. This is by no means propagating or talking about any, we're not political from this pulpit in our church. You could be political, great. We have uh, Democrats in here. We have Republicans in here, great, uh, whatever. But we're going to talk about the gospel. But this is just merely an example of some things that we've even seen recently. In October 12th, this is uh, in the New York Post uh, headline being Brooklyn Witches are planning to put a curse on Brett Kavanaugh. So wherever you are with that, I don't really care right now that the point of it and what we're trying to show is what is happening in our earth trying to figure out how do we gain power, how do we gain control, and we'll use any means necessarily. And this is actually a really popular thing right now. Um, here's part of the article. Brooklyn witches are brewing up a swirl of spells that they plan to unleash on U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. An occult bookstore in Bushwick called Catland promises to curse the newly minted justice as well as all rapists and the patriarchy during 
an October 20th ritual that a thousand have pledged to attend. Next, it's part of the article and here's pictures of what actually was shown. It says he will be the focal point, but by no means the only target. The event description reads, so bring your rage and all of your axes you've got to grind. The hex against Kavanaugh is about exacting justice that would otherwise be denied you, Brakael said, who was the leader of the movement, and meant to be cathartic for survivors of sexual assault. There will be photos and effigies of Kavanaugh, along with dirt from a graveyard and nails from a coffin, Brakael said. Even if you don't believe in the magic of it, You're given the space and the affirmation, having your voice heard, feeling a sense of fellowship and camaraderie. Now, depending on your perspective, you go, that's just silly, that's crazy, you know, all this stuff is is dumb. Um, Or you could go, there's really nothing new under the sun. What does scripture have to say about curses? What does scripture have to say about calling on spirits and evil in order to do things and proclaim? In fact, it does, it talks about it. Let's look at it. I want to talk about this today a little bit as we're talking about a big wait what section of the scripture in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Let me kind of set, uh, before you start reading, let me kind of set, I had this graphic in the middle because this is actually a picture in Israel on Mount Peor or about the place where the setting was of um, Numbers 22. And let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on. You have... Um, this prophet named Bilam and Balak. Balak is uh, a king of the Midianites and the Moabites. And uh, Bilam is a prophet and he's known around the area. He has, you know, his, his people, he, you give him money and he comes and he'll curse places and, and do these things and sacrifices. And, and he's known in that world as um, a real legit prophet. Well, Balak finds out, and imagine yourself on this mountain looking down. He finds out, he hears that the children of Israel have conquered the greatest nation known to man at that point, and that's Egypt. The greatest army, the greatest people. And he finds out these people have conquered. And not only have they conquered them, they didn't even use, they didn't pick up a sword. But their God, whom they didn't even know, who is this God? Like I know of my God and these gods and all these other gods. Who is this Yahweh, this God? But whoever he is, he's powerful because with himself, by himself, without the help of the people, he conquered Egypt. And he's going, listen, if these guys fight us, we're in trouble. The Midianites, the Moabites, as the king, I know I cannot fight these people because their God is powerful. And this is how he's coming into this. And so he says, you know what? I need more than just a sword, than just flesh and blood. I need something more. I need to call on the gods. I need, and I need the prophet of all prophets, like the man of God. I need him to come and I need him to curse these people. And I need these gods, these spirits to fight with me and go against them. And I need help. And so what he does is he calls on Balaam. And Balaam comes as this prophet. And at first, God's telling him, don't come. But he keeps pushing it because this is what we do. When God tells us not to do something, we go, well, 
It's crazy how this happens. Like God talks to our conscience first. Like you ever, if, if you ever first, first came to church or first came to Christ, which is even better, and, and God convicts you about something like forgiving somebody or being nice to someone or doing something, like it just, it, it pricks your heart and he's just like, it's like, oh, and you just feel sick. Oh, I gotta do it. And, and you do it and you feel better and God's moving and things are happening. But, but what happens over time is if he tells you to do something, you don't do it, you feel that sickness and then you kind of rationalize and you kind of push it down. Right, like holding the, the beach ball down in the ocean, right? Just gonna push that thing down, but it pops back up. And you either do it or you just rationalize why not to do it. And then what, what happens is the next time he talks to you, you go, uh, well, and then you rationalize that. And you get to the point where the Bible would say your conscience gets seared and you don't even feel it anymore. You don't even sense the presence of God telling you to do something and pushing on you. And many of you, sometimes God is silent, but sometimes God has been speaking so much, but you have seared and pushed down his voice so much, you know how to do that more. And you're going, oh, God's just not talking. He's going, I am. You don't want to do what I ask you to do. If you have teenagers, I love my daughter, but if you have teenagers, you know how this is. And our conscience gets seared and this is what we see actually happen to Balaam. God's like, don't go. And he keeps pushing it. And this guy's offering money. And then he's like, no. And he goes. And then this is the scripture. If you ever read this in Psalm, or I mean, excuse me, in uh, Numbers 22, where the, the donkey talks, talks to him and sees an angel of the Lord. There's so many things there. You, where you go, wait, what is happening? We don't have time to go through that. But what I do want to hit is Numbers 23, because they end up on this mountain and he's with Black and all of Black's princess, uh, princes and all his people. And he says, he tells him to do this. He says, okay, I want you to erect seven altars and I want you to get seven like rams and bulls and I want you to sacrifice them. And once you're done there, then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna hear the word of the Lord and I'm gonna speak it against them. And he's asking them to curse Israel. So he's standing up there and he's looking down at a portion of Israel and he starts and he can't curse them. He only blesses them. So Balak goes, what are you doing? Why do you keep blessing these people? He says, okay, maybe what we need to do is go to a different section of the mountain where you can see a different set of the people and let's set up and they set up an altar and they do it. And he goes and he goes to curse them and he blesses them again. And this happens four times. To Balak's dismay, he's really frustrated. Let me give you an example of one of them. Numbers 23, 7 through 8. Here we go. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, from Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Look at the next set of scriptures. God is not man. Balaam is saying that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. You imagine Balak's like, oh, dang it. God brings them out of Egypt. Yeah, I know, man. And is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment or sorcery or witchcraft against Jacob. No divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? And, and Balak's like, dude, 
you're killing me. I'm not giving you any money. We're done. And again, they do this four times and he just keeps blessing and he keeps blessing. Because here's what we see. Proverbs 26.2 says this, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not align. Look at Psalm 24. But God shoots his arrows at them. David's talking about people cursing him. He says, God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongue turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Now, see, that's good news for the church. Because here's what it's saying. People can come against you and they can do their chants and they can do their hexes. And no matter what, if you are in Christ, if Yahweh is your God, if God is your God and he is your Lord, he is with you. Nothing they say can come to pass. You see, there's like this protection where you're going, man, it builds this kind of confidence like, bro, say it, bring it, like I got this. And it's it builds not just, not just a confidence that gives you a swagger, but a confidence that makes you go, I'm with him. I'm with God. What are you going to do? He is the God. Good luck other gods coming against him. Because he could wag his hand and his finger and you're gone. That's my God. That's my people, he says. And it's not going to come to pass. That's great news for you and me. No matter what's going on and the prayers and things that happen. I mean, I, I, I went to high school in uh, uh, Southern California. And in our church, it was called Faith Community Church, the church I was at uh, where, I, where I got saved and God filled me with the spirit, amazing things happened. We had like this influx of people from the church of Satan um, that started coming. There is actually a church of Satan, in case you don't know this, is real. They have commandments. Do you know what their number one commandment is in the church of Satan? We found this out and they, they're coming to our church and they're like getting free and finding God and, and stop doing the things that they were doing. They said the number one commandment of the church of Satan is do whatever you will. Do what you want to do. It's the number one commandment. Isn't that the opposite of what Christ would say? I only do what I see the Father tells me to do. I'm about his business, not about my business. But isn't that our culture too? Like do, do whatever you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. And yet scripture really talks about what that kind of rebellion leads to. And yet, listen, in the church, you don't, I mean, you don't have to worry about those people coming and talking against you, but you have God with you. Now, here's what happens though. It, this story actually doesn't end really well. Even though he's blessing them and the enemy can't do anything against them and Balak is mad. Balak actually tells Balaam, like, I'm done with you. You're not getting anything. I'm out of here. And you go your way. And it kind of ends there. And we're not really sure what happened except, in that specific context, except Revelations, or Revelation 2.14 says this. Jesus is talking to the church. He says this. And he refers to this actual instance with Balaam. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught. Okay, so what, what happened? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Moses says in Numbers 31, 16, behold these, and Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what happened? Balak says, fine, you're not going to help me. I'm out of here. And Balaam goes, hey, bro, listen, I cannot curse what God has blessed. 
but I can show you and counsel you how to get them under a curse. I'll show you what to do. Because see, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, this prophet Samuel is talking to Saul and he tells him rebellion is the same as witchcraft. The goal of witchcraft is to control a situation or control somebody. Rebellion, when we rebel against the Lord, it's the same because that's the end goal is to have control over ourselves, but actually something else comes and controls us. One of the saddest things I see in scripture in referring to this incident, the scripture constantly refers back to this incident. It's almost like the, we talked about the fall of man, the fall of spirits. It's almost like the fall of Israel, like the point God just keeps talking about, be careful of this because the enemy has no right to you unless you give him the right through rebellion. You open the door, Hosea 9, 10, look at this. And if you know the book of Hosea, you've got this prophet who God tells him to marry and and fall in love with a prostitute in order to show how he feels towards Israel. Look what he says. This is God talking. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Imagine like wilderness and you're in the wild and you're to come upon a grape and you're like, oh, it's sweet. It's awesome. I mean, this is like, again, this is not the picture of God as your dad. This is the picture of a, a husband to a wife. And that time you saw that girl, oh, Dreamweaver, I believe you can get me through the night. Right? You're like, oh, that's her. I mean, that's what he's doing here. He's like, like grapes in the wilderness. I saw her. I found her, and I'm gonna, she's mine. And I wooed her, brought her out of Egypt. Look what he says. Like the first fruit of the fig tree, in its first season, I saw your fathers. So it was all good. Man, we were in the honeymoon. It was awesome. It says, but they came to Baal Peor. This is what we're talking about, numbers. And consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And look at what he says, and became detestable like the thing they loved. So what happened? He gave this counsel. He said, I can't curse, God. I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to get them under a curse. Numbers 25, one through three. While Israel lived in Shittim, this is just the next verse right after Balak, Balaam, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the angel or the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again, I want you to get the picture, not of a dad looking at a kid going, man, I know you messed up. I love you. Listen, this is a much bigger picture of a husband looking at a spouse saying, I've loved you. I've taken care of you. I've done everything for you. And you went off and had an affair on me and took another lover. This is, this is the picture you have to get. Otherwise, you get a misunderstanding of what happens next. They get away from the covering of the Lord and those curses now because they turn to other gods and they turn their own way and yoke themselves, which is the picture of the oxen that would be yoked together. They go in the same direction together with someone else other than the Lord and he's jealous. And I love that God gets jealous because I can understand that feeling. 
I could get it. If you've ever been hurt relationally like this, you get it. Like, and if you don't have a sense of anger or someone that you've loved to take care of and they go and do their own thing, especially in a, in a consecrated covenant kind of marriage relationship, you don't understand this. But if they were just like, eh, it's no big deal, I don't think they really love that person. But you see the love of the Lord and his jealousy. He's like, man, I'm jealous. And look what happens. Verse six, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So get this picture. We see, we see later, see the end, 24,000 people, a plague has gone out in Israel. This curse has started to come because they turned to other gods. And God went, all right. And this curse comes, this plague comes. All these people are dying and Moses and Aaron, and I mean, I'm sorry, Aaron's, Aaron's dead at this point, but Moses and, and the rest of the, the priests are going, what are we, what is going on? How do we, how do we, what is happening right now? And they're just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And they realize, okay, this is what's happening. And I'm sure Moses with all of these hundreds of thousands of people is finally kind of hearing and, and all this is going on. And this guy gets up and grabs a Midianite woman who he brought. And it says he starts to go there while they're crying and repenting. He goes and does this radical disobedience and is literally having relations with a woman right there. You have to understand what's happening here. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, or the grandson of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. You're like, dang. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Look what God says about Phinehas, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall come to be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. What do we see here? Go to the next slide. Radical disobedience started a curse. Radical obedience ended it. Radical disobedience. And, and this, is, this is not the people that are, are messing up. Oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, I just messed up. I sinned. Or I didn't know that was wrong. Or I got caught up in something. Listen, God's grace is amazing. These are people that go, you know what? I know what you want and what you don't want. I don't care. I'm going my own way. This is that unrepentant sin you know about. This is that thing that's constant in your life that you know about. And you're just like, I don't, I don't really care. Not, not that you're not struggling through it, but you're just like, you know what, I, I'm done trying. It just is what it is. And the New Testament talks about this as well. Second Peter 2, 19 through 20. Peter 
He's writing to the church and he's talking to them about false prophets. And here's what he says about these false prophets that come. He says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Listen, when you open the door to rebellion and sin in your life, you are not in control anymore. This is what it says. You have been overcome and now you are enslaved. You become a slave of that thing. I'll give you another example. Romans 6, 16 says this. Do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Jesus says, John 8, 34, Jesus answered him, truly, truly. In other words, like, I'm serious. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And I think everyone in the room here can go, oh, geez. But I think you need to think about this because, listen, not, not everything in your life that's bad is of the devil, okay? Some of it's you and you need to get your stuff together, right? Like we talked about before, you're not 100 pounds overweight because the devil's putting Twinkies in your mouth, okay? You, you, can, you can control that, right? You know, the devil didn't give you that ticket. You were going 100 and a 35, okay? Like, that's you, okay? If the devil's doing that, like, come see me. We'll talk. We'll take care of that real quick. I got this. Some things are the, the enemy, and you can look at your life and, 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 and listen. So you can look at your life, I got to do this. And sometimes God is afflicting you because he loves you and he's trying to get something through you. Yes. But sometimes you have opened yourself and you're going, why is this happening? And, and, and God's going, bro, you've opened yourself up. And you're rebelling against me. And, and you know, I'm going to let you go to that because I'm interested in your heart. I want you to freely come to me. I'm not going to force you. It's a relationship. Love doesn't force anybody. That's rape. God's not that way. But if you want to go your own way, he will convict you, talk to you, get your conscience going. But if you're just like, no, I'm done. And you see this. This is what that man did. And that's why we're going, God, that dude stabbed him. And that's, oh, this gory, man. I knew God was mean. No, he's jealous and he's going, how dare you come into my, my house, my throne? This is like allowing some predators to come to your kids and just be like, whatever. You wouldn't do something? God's going, man, good job, Phineas. Radical disobedience started this. Radical obedience is going to end it. And that speaks to something in our life. That if you've got some rebellion, you've got some of those things, you've got things to stop going, oh, this is just my pet sin. Let's kill it. And let's do something. You're not a victim. If, and and this, is, this is where I want to take us because look what Jesus says in John 14, 30 as I start to wrap up. He says this. He says, he says listen, disciples, I'm no longer going to be with you much. I'm not going to talk much. For the ruler of this world is coming. Who rules this world at that time? The enemy. He had free access through the fall. We handed him the keys. And he says, look what Jesus says. He's got no claim on me. And look why he says he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. I don't do what I want to do. Amen. This life's not about me. This life's about him. He knows better than I do. 
Listen, you and me, we're dumb sheep. We need someone to tell us what to do. But I hope you find someone that loves you to tell you what to do because there's going to be someone that tells you what to do. And you think, well, they love me. I'm opening the door. You're going, oh, God, they didn't love me. They're after me to devour me, to kill me, to destroy me. And Jesus says, he's got no play on me. That's a sinless Jesus. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? And here's how we're going to end this. There's two doors in the scripture that you see almost like on one end in Genesis in the beginning and one end in Revelation. And I'm going to show you Genesis chapter 4. When sin enters the world, you have Cain and Abel giving sacrifices to the Lord. And we could do a whole series on this easy, but God receives Abel's sacrifice because it's a blood sacrifice. He doesn't receive Cain's. And it says this, but for Cain and his offering, he had not regard, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Listen, Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to the church and he says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Repent doesn't mean feel really, really, really bad. It means turn the other way. Go a different direction. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You have these two doors. And God says, listen, when sin comes, he crouches at the door. He says, I have an older sister who's two years older than me. And, um, I, you know, we, we would fight and we would get mad. I would chase her in the house and she would run and she would slam the door and try to, try to get into the bathroom. And here's the thing. If I could wedge my foot into the little, little part of the door before I, I could like get enough to I could open the door and I could get in. Because that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to do is if he can just get that little foothold, like, oh, boom, I'm through. I got this. But a lot of times she would, she would beat me because, you know, she would go and she would shut the door and, and I could see her. She would like get down and she would look through the crack because she wanted to see if I was still there because a lot of times I would walk away, right? And then, and then she would open the door and I'd go and I'd get her and I wouldn't hurt her. I mean, we're, we're kids. In fact, my favorite thing to do was shut her in a room and make her laugh so much she peed herself, which happened. And so um, th this was just our weird thing, right? We're, we're dysfunctional. And so... Um, but she would look through that and to see if I'm still there. And I'm telling you that that's a picture of the enemy just crouching at the door going up. Come on, man, let me in. I can't come in on my own. You have the spirit of God in you, on you, but man, you can open up and I'm ready to come. Here's the thing. When God comes, it's loud. Think of the book of Acts. God comes in a rushing wind. When he leaves, it's quiet. All right. When the enemy comes, it's quiet. When he leaves, it's loud. And the enemy wants to come in. He's crouching. He's just waiting. Give me access, man. I can't do anything. Give me access. And I love the other picture, though, of Jesus going, knocking. 
Listen, I don't want to come in to destroy you and hurt you and harm you and take over you. I want to come in to love you and sit with you and sup with you and be with you and fellowship with you. I have life and life more abundant and the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Choose this day, life or death. Here's the coolest part. Because you and me and of ourselves, we are done, man. Your radical obedience is not enough. You can say, I've been radically disobedient. I'm going to be radically obedient. And, and I think you need to do that, but it's not enough. It's despair. I cannot defeat the enemy in my life and what's going on. But here's the cool part. Just like radical obedience through plunging a spear through the heart of these two people that were committing horrible atrocities in front of all of Israel. Stop the plague. Jesus was pierced, plunged to death for you and me. His radical, radical, when we talk about the cross, who would do this? I can barely say, I'm sorry to you. And his radical, Obedience did more than just stop a curse. He said, he's now set us free from the curse of the law. This man, God, Jesus was pierced for our sin and our transgression. And now listen, and it's not now that the enemy can't ever do anything. Listen, he's just a toothless lion, but he's waiting for you to open the door because he can't do it without your permission because God has handed the keys to you and said, now all authority is given to me. Here you go. What are you gonna do? Because here's the message. If sin and rebellion has opened that door, through faith in what Christ has done, I shut it. But then I don't stop because listen, it's more about what you do than just what you say. You can all day say, I love God and I'm all about Jesus. What are you doing in your life? Are you serving him? Are you about his business? Because you could just talk and deceive yourself, scripture says but be doers of the word, faith and works. Maybe today, first, first, you have to have faith in the one who was pierced for you to stop the curse. Jesus, I need you. Oh, I need you, God. My rebellion, I, I, I'm whoring myself out. I need you, Jesus, you're God. But then you don't stop there. You go and you work. I'm going to get in my word and I'm going to get with people and I'm going to confess sin and I'm going to be about the business of God and do what I need to do and, 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 and see what, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? Because I don't care what it takes. Your radical obedience wasn't just for me to sit here and go, thanks, Jesus. It was for me to go, thanks, Jesus. I can do that too now. I want to radically obey like you and I want to say, Satan's got nothing on me. And so then I can go to you and I can say, bro, let's go. Satan's got nothing on us. And then you can go to him and her and them. And we can say, he's got nothing on us. And we become a church that is powerful and mighty, that speaks truth and love. Because we're living out the things that we're actually speaking out and singing out. That's the kind of people God wants. And I think he deserves it. We're about to sing hallelujah, you've won the victory, Jesus. You've won it all for me. Death couldn't hold you down. We look to him and that brings us faith, not just relief, but faith. Thank you, God, and now let's go conquer.
whether it's an addiction, whether it's something you're struggling with that you can't let go of, whether you've given up trying to try, whether it's maybe something you need to confess to someone else that you've hurt. I think we as a people need to be a people that are repentant and say, you know what? I opened that door, Jesus shut it, and I'm gonna pull his hand with me and we're gonna shut it together. Stand to your feet with me.